God with us means that we can call on him and rest in the promise that he is there and he is our hiding place. Amen? It means that as we sing, we proclaim the name of Jesus and the enemy flees. Isn't that good news? Victory is won through Jesus. Let's proclaim his name this morning. We need no other hiding place. Our hope is safe within your name. This we know, this we know. You promise never to forsake. What you began, you will sustain. This we know, this we know. And I will call upon the Lord for He enough to save. So rise, your shackles are no more, for Jesus Christ has broken every chain. All of the heavens and the earth, announce the fullness of your word. This we commands that we shout for joy and we have the voice let's sing it let's proclaim it now to sing my 
the triumphs of his grace. If you were in service last week, oh, have you just been thinking about that all week long too? Man, God is so good and he's moving and, and to be able to be together here and hear everyone's testimonies of how good God is. Oh, was that not so sweet? I think one of the reasons prominent reasons that we gather here in this place is that through through testimonies and that through the words that we sing that we remember right that we're constantly reminded of his goodness and his faithfulness and so I just I just want to pause for a little bit before we sing this next song and I if you want to maybe think through your week and think of those triumphs of his grace. Think of where you've seen his grace displayed as he's moved throughout your life in the, throughout this week. Or maybe you want to dwell on the, the words of the next song that we're going to sing. I'll get spoiler. I will look up and know that there's none like you. I will bow down in a posture of reverence to tell you that I need you. I'll look back and see your faithfulness and look ahead and know that you're able. If you want to just dwell on these things. I just, oh, let's give just, just a little bit of space before we sing this song. Pray in your own way.
Father, even as we sing those words this morning, the beauty of what they mean hit us at the depth of who we are, Lord. All of our cares can be on you this morning. All of our cares are on you this morning. Father, we don't come into this place as strangers to who you are. Lord, you know every single aspect of who we are. You know us to the very depths of who we are. You know us better than we know ourselves. So, Father, this morning, we just thank you and praise you that we don't come in here alone. We don't come in here unknown. But the Lord, you see us, and your love is poured out on us over and over and over again. Thank you for what we have here this morning because of you, Lord. Thank you for this body of people, this family, this church family, this body of believers, whatever we call it, Lord. Thank you for the people to the left and right of us this morning. Thank you that we can worship you together, that we can come into this place, that we can see an extension of your love for us in their eyes and in their greetings and in their questions about how our week has been. Lord, that's you speaking through others today. Father, we just ask you continue to speak through what this service is, Lord, that you would speak through Pastor Brian, that, Lord, that our hearts would be open and receptive to your words through his mouth this morning. We come here for a purpose. We come to hear from you. Lord, allow us to do so clearly. Allow nothing to stand in the way of what you would say to us this morning as you continue to pour your love out on us. Thank you for this time that we have. Thank you for what we're about to experience in this time together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. A few days ago, I was out and about with our kids, and all of a sudden, they got a whiff of something, and as kids are prone to often do, they just kind of speak what they're thinking, no filter. It's, whew, Dad, that stinks. It smells like, yeah. Well, son, that time of year, we're getting the fields ready, it probably is that. And, <laughs> well... Then it wasn't two days later, then one of my other little kids says, whew, dad, it really stinks. I says, yeah, it, it, it kind of does this time of year. This time it was mulch. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's that season. We're getting the fields ready, ready to plant. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that over the next several weeks. But it's a good reminder that life is often full of stinky moments, full of, of stink, if you will. And it's only because of the grace that God gives us in the midst of those moments that we're able to make something good out of it. And I'm thankful that we have a God who's that creative and is able to work in those stinky parts of our lives to show us more of himself, to reveal himself to us. Grace, beautiful word, often misunderstood, uh, but a word that we use um, quite frequently. Uh, we use it before meals. Uh, we use it to describe what it is we've received in the midst of our salvation. It's a word that's found literally in the middle of the word thanksgiving. So in the midst of thanksgiving, we find grace. Inside of grace, we find this word joy, as we talked about last November. And last week, we spent time praising God, drinking from the cup of praise, expressing the joy of the Lord that is inside of us and letting it come out. Joy that is birthed out of his grace. But there's a funny thing about grace. Once it's received, it has to be shared. Grace is, is kind of viral, if you will. We, we're in this kind of midst of cold season. We have 82 degrees one day, 32 the next day. Uh, our, our, our immune systems are kind of out of whack, and there's a lot of viruses that are taking advantage of this, and they're spreading. Grace is viral, if you will. It spreads, or at least genuine grace. Real grace spreads. It has to spread. Otherwise, it's not really grace. So when we've received the grace of God, when we proclaim to have, have grabbed hold of the grace of God, our private faith suddenly becomes public. And for many, this is the differentiating of idea when it comes to our faith, when it comes to Christianity, is, is our public faith an expression of what God is doing? Or do we still want to keep it to ourselves? We won't let other people in. One way that we celebrate this private faith becoming public is through, through the idea of baptism. And, and while we haven't promoted this heavily, if, if you would like to be baptized next Sunday morning during our service, we're going to take a time to baptize a few that have expressed interest, and we're going to open it up to anyone else who would like to participate in that. If you're curious about baptism, of expressing to others publicly what God has done in your life privately, I want to meet with you. I want to meet with those that are interested right after service today in room 102 as you head out the hallway, the first room on the left. And maybe you have some interest you want to talk about during the week. Let myself know, Pastor Josh know, 
and we'll get you connected and get you um, set up to participate in this expression of grace that God has so richly poured into each of our lives. This testimony of faith, uh, this giving evidence to, to God's saving grace. See, it's funny, when we try out or experience a new coffee shop, we often will go tell others, hey, you've got to go try out this new place. Or have you seen the latest episode of? Or have you tried on a new pair of hey dudes? If you haven't, you really should. Um, or you have to fill in the blank. Those things in life that we get so excited about that we can't wait to tell others. In the midst of tasting, in the midst of trying, in the midst of experiencing, in your mind you're immediately thinking of, boy, I can't wait to go tell so-and-so about what it is I'm experiencing today. They're really going to love this. But when it comes to faith, when it comes to grace, we're hesitant. We're not as quick to rush out and to tell the ones that, that we, we know and love and share life with what it is that God is doing. Or what it is that grace has done. We give testimony to these life-changing experiences with excitement and with eagerness, yet when it comes to faith, often we find ourselves reserved and quiet. That itself is evidence of the type of grace that we've received, whether it's genuine or whether it's just a, some kind of facsimile of, of what it is of the real thing. Regardless, God today wants us to understand his grace is available to each one of us. And while I know there's legitimate reasons that we don't often rush out and share of God's grace, if we don't know how, or perhaps fear, or maybe we're uncomfortable, or we don't want to be inconvenienced, the reality is that grace requires some level or expression of, of outreach, of evangelism. Oh, there's a big word. He's like, oh, I'm not called to do that. God doesn't really want me to do that. I'm uncomfortable doing that. You see, it's what grace requires of us. It's not really an option. And then if it starts becoming an option to us, then it's really not grace at all. Here's a starting point for this new conversation. As we begin this new discussion of how we can become effective grace sharers is not found in a program or a class or, or a system or, or even in a sermon series. But our conversation begins with an understanding, maybe even a revelation. It begins with love, deeply rooted love in and with God. Because of grace that he gives to us out of his love, we then express in kind, our love for him through our love for others, other people. Often, I think life would be so much easier. We just didn't have certain people in our lives. Do you agree? We've all had that statement before. Life would be so easy. We just didn't have to deal with other people's issues. The thing is, they're saying the same thing about you. So it's really not a private conversation. Our private faith has become public. So we need to learn to navigate together how, as we love God, we show him that we love him by how we love one another, by how we love others. We finished last week our, our conversation of the four cups, realizing the correlation between the Passover lamb and Jesus's life and ministry. I closed last Sunday's message with a verse out of Revelation 19, verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. You and me, each one of us, those that we share life with, those that we know, are all invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Unfortunately, not all choose to come. They mark their card unable. They send back their RSVP as not being able to be present that day. Boy, how much they would love to be, but life just sometimes gets in the way. So while all are invited, not all choose to participate. This idea of weddings that I'm going to begin our conversation today in Matthew chapter 22. Um, I'm going to begin there, but I'm going to end up in Matthew chapter 11 today if you're kind of following along in, in your Bibles. But in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus begins to share this parable with, with the people that are listening. And in the midst of this parable, he talks about in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, anytime Jesus himself says the kingdom of heaven is like, we should really pay attention. 
This is a really important teaching he's about to share with us. Not that all of his teachings aren't important, but this one speaks of the kingdom of heaven. It says, it's like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, we obviously, in hindsight, recognize right away what he's talking about. He, as God, is the king, preparing a wedding banquet for his son. And the wedding, his son is getting married to his church. We are his church. We see what Jesus is talking about in this moment. But at the time, those who were listening didn't quite have the hindsight that we, we fortunately do. And, and this parable goes on. He says, he sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused. Left for those who were invited the wedding supper of the Lamb. In Jesus' parable, they refused to come. We sent more servants. Tell those who invited, I prepared dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. They paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servant, the wedding banquet's ready, but but those I invited did not come. Go to the street corners. Invite to the banquet everyone you find. Just go find people to come. Those who are willing to come, let them come. So we see in this story this invitation that we receive. to Come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we get to choose. We get to decide. In verse 14 in Matthew chapter 22 we, we see this uh, summation of this parable where Jesus says, For many are invited, but few are chosen. The word chosen in, in this verse is the Greek word eklektos. Eklektos speaks to those who have chosen to come, those who choose to accept the invitation. We become then the chosen because we've said yes to the invitation. Curiously, then, Jesus follows up this parable with, with three different interactions with those who are, quote-unquote, against him. Those are kind of, that are out to, to, to get him. The first one is this parable, uh, was this conversation, if you will, of, of with the Pharisees. Jesus, in verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. And they, they present this trap about paying taxes to Caesar, thinking, well, whatever he says, it's going to be wrong, or we're going to get him one way or another. Jesus responds to their trap in a way that's just brilliant. He silences them. And then it says in verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees, who were also part of, of the religious leadership, the Sadducees were a group that did not believe in the resurrection, or that resurrection was possible. So they go to Jesus, kind of with this other test, with this question, that they're really concerned. Well, the scripture says that um, we're supposed to do this. And if, if we are married, and, and, and the woman, and his, his, her husband dies, and the brother is supposed to then marry his widow, and then so on and so forth, what happens if all the brothers die? And she's just left alone. Poor thing, if she's left alone and all these people have died. I'd be started asking questions a long time ago. But that's really not in Scripture. The Sadducees want to know, when they get to heaven, who's going to be her husband? Kind of a really silly question. But that's kind of what their thinking was. And Jesus responded accordingly, kind of silenced the Sadducees. And then the Pharisees come back for round two. In verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They were then an expert in the law. Scripture tells us, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He's an expert. He already knows in his mind what he thinks the answer should be. But he goes to Jesus, says, teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law? Now, Jesus knows their motives, knows their hearts aren't pure, knows that they're just trying to trap him, if you will, in his words and his answers. They're not really interested in learning or in knowing. So Jesus, though, in his response, isn't concerned about them. Rather, he's concerned about those who really, truly are listening. So those that are kind of on the fringes, if you will, paying attention. And Jesus responds in verse 37 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first greatest commandment. And then just to add a little sugar on top, Jesus says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's the part we tend to focus on. That's the part that we tend to try to live out. But Jesus continues. And then the next response he gives is not just for the Pharisees, but it's also for us. All the law and the prophets, Jesus says, hang on these two commandments. Everything else you see in this book 
Well, of course, in that, at that time, it would have been the first five books. Hang on these two commandments. Without these two commandments, everything else crumbles. This is the foundation. This is where it begins. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I could pause right there. And if God were to want us to give an answer, right now we would have a clear understanding of what grace means to you and to me. How would we answer this question? Do we do this? Is this what our life looks like? We love God with most of our hearts. Yeah, parts of our soul. Three-fourths of our mind. We hold a little bit back. But there's things that we've come to enjoy. Those parts of life that we think that we've built and created. If, if we can't get past the first commandment, we're never really truly going to get to the second commandment. Or the way that we practice the first commandment is going to impact how we practice the second commandment. The way that we read the first commandment drastically going to shape our understanding and expression of grace in our lives. And this becomes a sticking point. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they differed in their understanding of what it was that the law hung on, at the core what the law was all about. To, for them, the law was a way for them to prove to God how much they loved God. By keeping the commands, by following the traditions, by, by listening to the laws, they, through their obedience, showed God how much they loved God. But in, in time, what had happened is this had just become a way to lift themselves up, point others to themselves instead of pointing them to the one that they were trying to serve or be obedient now, to this point in biblical history, especially at this point, religious teachings had become hard, uncomfortable, impossible to fulfill. And for some today, that they may still consider the same to be true, or at least our understanding of it. This thing we call church, it's just too hard. It's uncomfortable. It's just impossible for us to be obedient to. We modify our practice of faith, just as the Pharisees did, to fit our understanding or our preferences or our desires. We change it around to make it fit our life rather than allowing it to change us. I want to turn back to Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30. We're going to spend some time on this morning and speak to the significance of what it is that Jesus is really talking about. It's planning season around us. Uh, it's getting close to where we're going to begin breaking ground, if you will. Uh, getting, getting ready to, to plant seeds. And, and Jesus is going to talk about planting uh, with us in Matthew chapter 11. We'll spend some time here over these, these next several weeks together. And he looks to the people. And in Matthew chapter 11, he, he goes on this pretty challenging teaching. And this is a, a pretty deep chapter if you really want to spend some time in it. And, and what Jesus is saying. Because he's really calling us to this deeper practice of faith. It comes after... John the Baptist and his account, and, and recognizing um, John's doubts, but, but Jesus responded to his doubts of why he's really come and what he's all about. He then gets into this conversation about uh, woe to those who <laughs> Jesus has been to and performed miracles in these cities in front of people, and they're still not recognizing who he is. The miracles themselves weren't enough. Then he addresses weariness, because many people are weary, but perhaps not for the reasons that you might think. Verse 28 in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's a great invitation, isn't it? How many times have we said that verse when we just had a tough time in life and we just needed someone, we needed to be reminded that God was there with us and that we weren't alone. This invitation that Jesus gives, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Now, for us to fully understand and appreciate what Jesus is inviting us to, we have to understand what he's really saying. We have to get the context. Verse 29, and he kind of takes a, a little bit of a left turn, at least on the surface it might appear that way. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And here we see this Greek word, Yoke. I'm talking about an egg yoke. I'm talking about a yoke. This might look familiar to some of you, but this was used back in the day to, to, to hook two animals together. 
to yoke them together so they could work together to fulfill a purpose. This, by its shape and by looks, was probably hand-yoned, hand-carved, and, and utilized on the farm. We'll talk about that in just a little bit, but what all that indicates. But some of you, if you want to borrow this after service for your children, these, these do come out. I'll leave that up to you. Oh, maybe not, man. I just broke it, Bob. But I want to thank Bob Brake for, and those who have helped him kind of bring this up for us, this visual for us, because it's going to be really important for us to understand what is it Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 11. This Greek word, uh, zugos, this is a zugos, if you wonder what it is in the Greek. It's a yoke. And the word yoke, it's used on cattle, means to join or to couple together, right? to, to bring two together so that they can do the same, accomplish the same task. Metaphorically, though, it also speaks to, uh, in reference to being burdened or bonded or in bondage, if you will. Now, you understand what that means. If they put this around your neck and you're coupled together, you, you're kind of stuck there. You're, you're going to do what it is that those who are leading you want you to do. You're kind of bound together. You're yoked together. You become a slave, in essence, to those that you are yoked to. Now, it's planting season around here, and you don't see many yokes still being utilized in our lives today. These are hard to find, as you might imagine. Instead, we replace it with tractors and implements, and, and, and we're getting them ready. And it's, it's time to prepare the fields to get plowed. And many years ago, we planted a garden and when we lived in the Dayton area, and I borrowed a rototiller, and I started to, to plow a part of our backyard and realized very quickly that West Carrollton was, was a town built on top of a kind of a giant gravel pit because you got it just a couple inches deep and you just hit a bunch of rocks. And the garden never really did very well because the soil wasn't very good, and we'll talk more about that next week. But in days past, fields were plowed or prepared with oxen pulling or being linked together by a yoke. The yoke was then hooked to a plow. The oxen would work together to plow the fields. Team of oxen were, were joined, coupled together with this heavy beam that fit over their shoulders. They were attached neck to neck, working together to prepare the soil. We've heard the phrase unequally yoked. Jesus speaks to that, do not be unequally yoked with one another. Same is true when it comes to oxen. You, you would typically, when you would put oxen together, you would put an experienced ox though, with a young ox. So in essence, there would be this unequal yoking going on at the very beginning because the new would need to be broken in or chained, or, or trained, if you will. Wise or experienced farmers would not pair uh, the young, new, um, full of energy ox with a poor, untrained ox. The young ox would bring strength and, and would bring in exuberance, but not knowing how to wear the harness or the yoke would lead to lost efficiency, weariness. Straight lines would be replaced by crooked lines as the young energetic ox was strained against the yoke, rushing forward uncontrolled, often hurting their necks, choking themselves. But when paired with a mature trained ox, learning takes place. The mature ox leads the younger, teaches them how to wear the yoke lightly, how to go about their work slowly and steadily, how to plow straight lines, then so doing, do so more efficiently. Avoiding injury and weariness that often comes when we try to do things too quickly. See, we're beginning this conversation of getting into the dirt, dirty work, if you will. When we start planting a garden, you go into it with this expectation that you're not going to get your hands dirty. This is dirty work. When you work in the dirt, when, when, when you're dealing with oxen and cattle and plows and fields, we're going to get our hands dirty, church. Let me jump to Matthew chapter 9 quickly. I, I've shared this passage in recent days with our vision team, and you'll be hearing more about our vision team in the days ahead. But, but as I share this with, with them, I want to share it with you, because this is the beginning of our conversation. This is where I believe God wants us to start with our focus. In verse 37, Jesus then says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. The harvest. The, the, the harvest is, is complete, it's plentiful, but the laborers are few. But before we get to the harvest, we have to understand there's a lot of preparation still to be done. There's plow needs to occur. There's sowing and watering and feeding and weeding that needs to happen. And before we get to any of that, we have to address the yoke. And this invitation that Jesus gives to those that are listening in Matthew chapter 11, it's, it seems odd. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take, take my yoke upon what, What's he talking about? When we understand culture and understand what else a yoke was referring to, we begin to see the invitation that Jesus is extending. In Jesus' day, teaching, or a rabbi's teaching especially, or the Pharisee's teaching, was also called a yoke. A teaching yoke of the religious leaders was what the law had become. Now when we understand what the meaning of the word yoke is, to become burdened, to become in bondage to, become a slave to, that the yoke of the Pharisees, that the yoke of the religious teachers, it became this thing that was choking, that that was chafing one's neck, that that did cause us to feel trapped. And the law had become this yoke, this long list of rules and traditions and practices that were often in conflict with one another, so that no one could even keep or measure up. The yoke was too difficult. The yoke was too hard. So we have this culture that is just overwhelmed with what the religious teachers were telling them the faith had to look like. It was too much. So Jesus then shows up and offers them a different invitation. The Mosaic law had become a burden, a new type of bondage. Jesus, I'm sorry, God gave them the law as they left Egypt as a way to keep them in line to help them become his people. But the law itself had become a new type of slavery. And coupled to the yoke of the law, it was impossible for them to see the harvest to which Jesus was referring. Only part of a field like that. Who would want to be? But Jesus comes to show us a different way. Just trying to keep up, trying to maintain, trying to measure up was so tiring. It was such a heavy weight upon one's faith. People were desperate for something more. Church, let's not miss what Jesus is saying. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Come to me, those who are weary and burdened with what others have taught you faith is all about. Come to me, those who are weighed down and just want to give up. Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching upon you. Learn from me, Jesus says. I am gentle and humble. I bring a new way. I bring rest. See, rest comes from this relationship that we find with God the Father through Jesus the Son. Let me jump back a couple weeks just so that we can be reminded of what it is that Jesus brings to us. He brings us peace. He brings us freedom. He brings us deliverance. He brings us purpose. He brings us fulfillment. In the context of those things that we experience in the four cups, we then find rest in him. The thing that Jesus invites us to this restful life, this fulfilling life, this grace-filled life, we find it when we take his yoke upon us. Jesus is the mature ox that we need. He invites us to learn as he leads. What Jesus also reveals in this passage is that we are all, whether we realize it or not, yoked to something. We're all joined or connected to something. And if that something is anything but Jesus' is easy yoke, that means we're unyoked to him. If we're yoked to anything but Jesus, that means we're not yoked to Jesus at all. We're disconnected. And we're bearing a burden that is unnecessary. When life weighs us down through our misplaced priorities or our self-reliance or our selfishness, when we make faith into anything than what it is that Jesus models for us, when we create yokes, we have new laws or cultural expectations or adding political flavors to our faith or attempting to define grace by what we do rather than what, what Jesus has done, all of this only leads to a heavy, difficult, burdensome faith. It leads us back to bondage. Then these moments that we try to claim the fields for ourselves. Let me jump back to Matthew chapter 9. I read verse 37 a moment ago, but here's verse 37 and 38. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Into his fields. See, the Lord of the harvest sends us into his fields. When we try to do it all on our own and we bear this burden that's not ours to, to, to bear, we claim the fields for ourselves. They're not our fields. They're God's. And when we yoke ourselves to Jesus, he leads us out into his fields to fulfill his purposes. Now, there's a word in this passage that I think can be difficult for us. 
easy. Easy yoke. It's not really easy. It's kind of an oxymoron, if you will. Uh, there's nothing easy about a yoke, about being joined together. And even when we're yoked to Jesus, it's not always easy, but it's necessary. It's needed. This is where the dirty work becomes reality. Because when we're yoked to Jesus, this is where we find rest. But the rest often comes in the midst of work. It, becomes, it comes in the midst of being fulfilled in our purpose as we pursue what it is he has for us. As we become those who pour out the grace we received, that's not always easy. That sometimes takes work. But that's where we find the rest in the midst of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's dirty work. So often it's not clean I don't know why or where or when we got into this expectation that ministry was supposed to be clean and, and easy and, and always uplifting and, and, and we're just going to go home with having feeling great and have these wonderful emotions. There's certainly times like that. There's certainly great times where we see God at work and we celebrate those moments. We praise him. We spent last week praising God. We we're thankful to see him working in our lives. But there's often moments where it's difficult, but yet worth it. We've been talking the last uh, couple of months about a celebrate recovery option for our faith family, and we're still researching that and looking into it. In the coming weeks, our, our staff and our church board will be going to experience a celebrate recovery service where we get to see lost people, those who are struggling, find hope and experience God's grace. But here's the part of me, I'm going to be really honest up front with all of you, the part of this ministry scares me because it's not easy. There's nothing clean about it. Yet that's what God, I think, often invites us into is the unclean moments, is the dirty work. Lost people. We don't wear white gloves. We've got to get our hands in the dirt, so to speak. What's this look like? Let me jump to the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. Prophet Elijah is just finished this time where he's called down fire from heaven and God has wiped out the, through Elijah's faithfulness, the prophets of Baal, and Elijah's gone into hiding because Jezebel's threatened his life, and Elijah runs away, and, and God has this encounter with Elijah in the cave, and God asks Elijah multiple times, what are you doing here, Elijah? He sends Elijah to the, Elisha. We see in verse 19 of 1 Kings, chapter 19, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Now, Elijah himself wasn't driving 12 yoke of oxen. That would be pretty impressive. He was driving one pair of oxen, Scripture tells us. He himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to Elisha and threw his cloak around him. This invitation Elijah is giving to Elisha, this calling, uh, this uh, wanting him to come and to follow, to be a protege, to pick up where he's about to leave off. It's this same invitation that Jesus gives to us. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. I find it incredibly powerful that we find Elisha driving oxen who are yoked together. He receives this new invitation to come and to practice a new way and to become this, this voice for God. We didn't read in verse 21, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This action by Elisha is very significant. This accepting of the calling, this accepting of this new yoke that God was extending to Elisha, Elijah said, okay, there's no going back for me. His choosing to follow was permanent. I think too often we choose to follow while we leave our plows in the background. We want something to go back to just in case. Or when, when the following leads us to places we don't want to go, we want to go back to our farms and back to our cattle. But Elisha says, no, I'm going to destroy my plow. I'm going to burn it. I'm going to kill the oxen. I'm going to cook them, and we're going to eat them. There's no going back for me. So when we get unyoked from the world and we yoke ourselves to Jesus, we need to make sure there's nothing behind us that we can go back to. There shouldn't be anything we want to go back to. But too often, we want to have a foot in both arenas. Because sometimes the easy yoke that Scripture talks about isn't so easy. Sometimes it's not so clean. Sometimes we don't like the idea of getting dirty. We leave our plows in the background, you know, just in case. 
See, we like the idea of easy, but not always the idea of being yoked. We want the easy, but we don't want to be connected or joined. Jesus is inviting us to something more. We want the clean, but not the dirt. We like the plentiful harvest, but not being sent into the fields. This is a love issue. Church, this is a grace problem. And it's something that's real in our lives when we're yoked to something other than Jesus. His teaching, his law, Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, love the Lord your God, all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is where it begins. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. We begin with that. The rest of it begins to make sense. First, love God. Get yoked with Jesus. Get joined or connected to him. Let him lead. Let him teach and guide us. Then love others. See others the way he sees them. We get back to Matthew chapter 9 as we begin to wrap this up this morning. Now I believe, I hope scripture starts to look a little differently for you when you read it. I hope we're understanding our takeaways a little bit different. Let me go back now. We read Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38 a few moments ago. Let's go back to verses 35 and 36. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. In verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. His harvest fields are filled with the crowds, the harassed, the helpless, the sheep without a shepherd. This is where we are called. This is where we're sent. This is the yoke that Jesus invites us to. This is the invitation that we're given. Burn your plow, kill your oxen, yoke yourself to Jesus, and find rest. How do we expect to find rest amongst the harassed and the helpless, amongst the crowds? It begins by how we see them. Do we see them as an inconvenience? Or do we see them the way that Jesus sees them? Do we look upon them with compassion? Do we see their hurting, their sickness, people in need of hope and healing, people ready to have the grace that we've received splashed upon them? Until we start seeing people the way that Jesus sees them. We're never really going to love them the way that Scripture calls us to love them. If we don't love people the way that God wants us to love them, then the reality is there's going to come a point in time where we have to ask the question, how much do we really love God? All of these pieces are woven together. And I'm glad that in his grace and his patience, Jesus still extends this invitation to us. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. As we close today, we're going to continue kind of this theme we had in our worship. We're going to look up. I will look up. Beautiful song. Helpful, encouraging song for those of us who struggle at times, those who are weary and burdened. But in the midst of this, this, this worship, in the midst of looking up, until we then go from looking up to looking out, if all we're doing is looking up, and we're missing an important part of what it is that Jesus is trying to show us. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. If you love God, the second one has to come true. We then have to love others. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are still few. But Jesus is still inviting us to take his yoke upon us. Stand with me. As you probably hopefully have learned in my style, we're, we're going to continue to build on this for the next several weeks together. And each one can stand on its own. There's some individual learnings you could take each Sunday. We talk about uh, dirty work. But to get the most out of it, it, it begins with us beginning by yoking ourselves to Jesus. This morning, if you're yoked to anything but him, and you're not yoked to him, Today's an opportunity for us to burn our plows. Start over.
take his yoke upon them. To first see him, to first love him, so that he could help us love others. I get it. A lot of people in your life, you'd, you'd like to hook up to a yoke. They, they probably deserve it. There's some who might think the same of us. But as people who have received his grace, we need to be grace bearers as well. What are you yoked to this morning? What's the Holy Spirit revealing to you? We need rest today. Amazingly, we find it when we yoke ourselves to God's only Son, through whom we find grace. Let me pray for you. And we're going to worship. I want to encourage you not just to look up, but ask God how He might have you look out. Father, guess, Lord, it's as simple as asking the question, what are we yoked to? Of being willing, Lord, to acknowledge whether or not we're yoked fully to you or just partially. Whether we do love you with all of our heart or most of our heart, all of our soul or just, you know, maybe half of it. All of our minds are just the parts that don't require us to give up something that we really like or enjoy in this world. For us to find rest that's promised to us in your word, it, it comes in the midst of relationship. And, and ironically, Lord, it comes when we yoke ourselves to you. On the surface, it may seem like we're, we're just adding or replacing one uh, yoke for another. But Lord, to be yoked to anything but you leads us back to bondage keeps us trapped. It's, it's too heavy for us. But Father, I pray that as we look up this morning, we'll find rest. But also, Lord, to know that after we look up, that we have to look out. For it's not grace. Pray, Lord, when we see the crowds, we'll see opportunity. We'll see people that were just like us. Where we accepted the forgiveness that grace offers to us and we stepped back into the relationship Lord that you extend to us Lord our response our graceful response would be to go where we're sent to give testimony Lord of the great things you have done and are doing it won't be coffee or a TV show or a pair of shoes we tell our friends about Lord it'll be you last week how we just couldn't keep our praises in. Help us, God, not to be quiet. Loosen our tongues, Lord, to share the great things you have done. God, we may not be afraid to take on the easy yoke that you extend to us. The yoke of Jesus. worship him together.
share this message.